This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is senior correspondent at National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is Professor of Philosophy, Religious Studies, and Theology, and Director of the Center for the Study of Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. He's also Affiliated Professor of Spirituality at the Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio, Texas. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Happy Thanksgiving to you both. I am so thankful for both of you. Heidi, how have you been? Yes, gobble, gobble. It's Thanksgiving week, and I've started early, so I've already traveled over the river and through the woods to get to um, my husband's mom's house in Philadelphia. Um, So I'm coming to you with a different backdrop if we share a photo of our recording. And I'm very excited because my daughter and I will be going to New York tomorrow, so we're recording on Tuesday, to see the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade on Thursday morning, which has been a longtime desire of hers. So it's been travel, travel, fun, fun. I'm not approaching the levels I know that the two of you have been doing. (laughs) But I had a wonderful visit to Seattle, I guess that was last week, Seattle University Institute for Catholic Thought and Culture hosted me for a talk on synodality, and a bunch of people came out, including two of our friends, Dan, from our uh, tour to Assisi, Hilaire and Anne. Shout out to them. But it was a great talk, and it was really great to hear from some everyday informed Catholics about their thoughts about synodality. And then I rushed home for the board meeting for the National Catholic Reporter, which was in Chicago, and we had an event there that included some members and donors. So I've been talking to a lot of folks lately, which I love to do, but mostly I love to talk to you guys. (laughs) So I know you both have been traveling like crazy. Dan, tell us about all the conferences you've been to. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been it's been a conference week. Happy Thanksgiving to you both as well and to our listeners. 
So I was privileged to host my friend and one of my theological mentors over the years, Sister Ilya Delio, here at the Center for the Study of Spirituality on Tuesday night of last week, November 14th, um, for a really wonderful lecture. We had hundreds of people join us online, about 100 people in person. It was, was extraordinary. And then the next morning, she and I coincidentally were on the same flight out of South Bend, so we were able to catch up and chat. There are limited flights, depending if you're on one of the big three airlines, likely you're going to bump into somebody heading out of South Bend to one of the hubs to go somewhere else. Where I was heading was San Antonio, Texas, for uh, a conference that began on Wednesday the 15th that went through Friday uh, in honor of the great scripture scholar, professor of spirituality, and historian of religious life, especially women religious in the U.S. context, and that is Sister Sandra Schneider's IHM. So the Oblate School of Theology was hosting a conference in her honor, celebrating her life and work with some really extraordinary lectures and celebrations. I was asked to interview her for a video series that'll be coming out in the coming months, and all in all, it was wonderful. It was just great. But that set me up. That conference immediately preceded the big annual uh, American Academy of Religion and Society of Biblical Literature conference. It's the mega religion conference. Our listeners over the years will have heard David and me talk about this. There's roughly 10,000 scholars from around the world that gather. Nowhere in the world are there that many religion nerds in one place at one time. So it's an extraordinary experience. But David and I saw each other. We connected and spent several hours together over coffee and talking and catching up and sharing ideas, catching up on our book projects and running into a lot of wonderful people. David probably can say more, but I'll just say, because he probably won't acknowledge this, that at least two people were David Dalt fans and listeners to the podcast. That was um, so awkward so. and weird, but I also enjoyed it very much. <laughs> yes. No, it was, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. People really appreciate, David, your frankness and sincerity and reflections as they enjoy, I'm sure, all of the conversation among the three of us. But uh, yeah, there were some special uh, devotees of, of David Dalt. I would go so far as to say fanning out at least a couple people over the course of the weekend. So David, what was your experience? It's always a joy to see you. I can't believe we live about two hours and one time zone away, but we have to travel to Texas to see each other. Well, yeah. <laughs> at least it's and... not Italy like Heidi and I in Rome. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, so my experience, and I think I've talked a little bit about this. I left the Academy in 2013 and went into media production. And in 2017, 2018, I was dipping my toe back into it. And then COVID hit. And uh, I got my job and mostly started my time as a professor back on the tenure track with everything in COVID conditions. So not going to conferences, not having face-to-face -face meetings. So this is the first time that I have been back to AAR in probably five years. And immediately when I got there on Saturday, I had this physical reaction of like, I hate this. I hate this. <laughs> I hate this. Why did I do this to myself? I'm so angry. Why did I do this to myself? And so I... It, and But the very first person that I saw, Dan, was you. I bumped into you in the exhibit hall, and then we, we spent a couple of hours together with coffee and just walking around, and that was what I needed because that completely reset my uh, internal compass, and I was able then to sort of human-size the conference from then on. And then later that evening, we reconnected again, and that was when I met these wonderful students that you work with and other people that you know from your 
many travels, and they said such kind words about the show, and they said such kind words about me. It was really humbling and beautiful, and I'm so grateful for that. And that set the tone for the entire next several days. And as we were recording this, first of all, happy Thanksgiving to everyone, because this is going to drop on Thanksgiving. But literally, I'm sitting in my seat about three and a half Four hours ago, I was in San Antonio, Texas, and now I'm back in Chicago recording this. So I'm a little not sure of where I am at the moment, but I'm, I'm so glad to be here and back with the two of you. I'll just say, you mentioned some of my students, so shout out to my graduate students at the Avalade School of Theology, in a special way to Ali Tao, who I know is one of your super fans, David, one of the many people who spoke with you. And I should just say a shout out as well to the College Theology Society that every year at the AAR, which is interreligious, interfaith, in some ways secular sometimes in its study of religion. There are lots of different kind of silos and sections and groups of scholars working on different things that are very disparate in, in many ways. But the College Theology Society, as an allied academic institution, hosts a reception and a celebration of the Vigil Mass every Saturday night every AAR. I think last year, maybe, or the year before, I, I presided at it. And it's usually a member of the CTS who's ordained will preside, and often a woman theologian will preach. And so a shout out as well to my colleague from the Oblate School of Theology, Dr. Amy Maxey, who is the preacher, and to Father John Markey, a Dominican priest and scholar who was the presider, and to all of those who make this possible. Because I think, David, you were one who maybe wasn't aware of this liturgy. And I know there were other people I bumped into and said, hey, if you're looking for a Catholic Mass, come to the celebration. And it's always very kind of low key. And almost I, I think about it as the, the house liturgies of the early Christian centuries in the midst of this deeply Greco kind of academic world in the spirit of St. Paul. So um, yeah, shout out to CTS and, and to all of our friends and colleagues. Well, and I just want to say my gratitude, of course, for both of you, but especially for you today, David, that is pretty uh, amazing. You must have been on the very early flight to be in Texas and three and a half hours later, be in your seat, ready to go, having researched our topics that we're going to talk about. That's pretty dedicated. So I hope our listeners find some time over Thanksgiving weekend to hear the podcast or at their convenience. But I'm really grateful for all the work that you do behind the scenes and in front of the camera and microphone. So... Well, thank you for those kind words. And I also want to circle back to what Dan said. So I'm hoping that I get the names right. So Allie and her husband, Michael, also, Zach and your other friend, Matthew, all were people that came up and said hello and talked about being fans of the show. And so I just want to express my gratitude to each of them for taking the time and having the interest both to be a listener, but then also to... Because it's... It's weird to meet people. I just know that. And so I'm so <laughs> grateful that they took the time to say, hey, you exist and what you do matters. And that that meant a lot to me. And I'm very grateful. And that allowed me, again, it reset my internal compass. So I was able to be a much more human participant in the conference and was able to really treat the moments that I was having when I was overwhelmed. I had a, a sort of place to ground myself. And I just, I encountered a lot of blessings over the last four days in San Antonio. And that, that was not expected. And I'm really, and uh, one of the blessings is that everything worked out this morning for me to be sitting here and talking to the two of you. <laughs> so that, that's just one example of several things that lined up really well. And I thank the Holy Spirit for that. Yeah. And, and it's just going to be nice to have a conversation conversation about lots of stuff today. And 
So let's go ahead and turn to that, listeners. So today on the show, we're going to be talking about two topics. We're going to be talking about the recent events with the dismissal of Bishop Strickland and how he has responded. And then we're going to be looking at the latest threat to the Voting Rights Act of 1965 in Arkansas and what that might mean as we move into the 2024 election. And then in our third segment, Heidi is going to be talking with my colleague at Institute of Pastoral Studies, Professor Timon Davis. So all that's coming up on The Francis Effect. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Father Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. On November 11th, the Vatican published a brief notice stating that Bishop Joseph Strickland had been relieved by Pope Francis of his ministry as Bishop of the Diocese of Tyler, Texas. Reports have suggested that Strickland was asked to resign on November 9th, but refused, putting Pope Francis in the rare position of formally removing a sitting bishop from his Episcopal office. In this case, a full decade ahead of when Strickland would have had to submit his resignation letter as required by canon law for all bishops who reached the age of 75. Strickland's removal is the culmination of an official process that began in June of this year when the Vatican launched an apostolic visitation into Strickland and his diocese. The visitation was led by retired Bishop Gerald Kikanis of Tucson, Arizona, and Bishop Dennis Sullivan of Camden, New Jersey. While the specific details of that investigation have not been revealed publicly and are not expected to be released, it's safe to say that the conclusion and possible recommendations did not bode well for Strickland. Priests and diocesan officials who spoke to reporters on the condition of anonymity have said that they were asked about Strickland's public statements, including on social media about Pope Francis, and about the increase of priests and religious with, quote, irregular canonical statuses, unquote, moving into the Diocese of Tyler, and also about the morale of the clergy in the diocese. And finally, according to one priest, quote, whether the priest thought Strickland's episcopacy was salvageable, unquote. Strickland was named Bishop of Tyler in 2011 by Pope Benedict XVI, and for many years was seen as an affable young bishop known for his blogging and distance running. Things began to change during the Trump administration, especially in the year 2018 after the revelations of the abuse and cover-up involving former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. Strickland's rise to right-wing fame took off after he wrote a public letter in support of the former Vatican ambassador to the United States, Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, who has been a vocal critic of Pope Francis and has frequently endorsed conspiracy theories. Strickland soon became the darling of those who were both politically and ecclesially to the right as he increased his social media criticism of Pope Francis and others. He was also known to support like-minded clergy and religious whom he endorsed and sometimes even welcomed into his diocese after their own bishops or superiors had reprimanded them for their statements or behavior. The most famous instance of this involved Strickland in 2020 endorsing a controversial video by the sanctioned La Crosse, Wisconsin priest, Father James Altman, who claimed that, quote, you cannot be a Catholic and a Democrat, unquote. 
Strickland is also well known for his anti-LGBTQ views and overt support for former President Donald Trump, who is currently facing 91 felony counts across four criminal indictments. Dan, like so many people, you have been interested in this story and following the developments for some time. Where should we begin to unpack this situation with Strickland? Gosh, where to begin? Maybe something anecdotally I'll, I'll share from my experience. Uh, we were talking uh, at the opening of the episode about that uh, you're traveling back from the AAR early this morning, the day we're recording here Tuesday. I, I came back uh, last night and I had a ride to the airport from an Uber driver, a, a native San Antonian who was very cordial and a, a great conversationalist and was striking up conversation and very quickly through just small talk learned that I was at this conference for theology and religion and he shared that he was an undergrad theology major and identified as Catholic and very quickly we had a conversation in this maybe 15-20 minute car ride and one of the first things he asked me once he realized there was sort of a compatriot in theology and, and Catholicism was, what did I think of the Bishop Strickland affair? What did I think about this? And I thought, this is really striking. Here's a young man in his late 20s who's uh, working part-time in Uber and picks up uh, a theologian and, and a Catholic priest and is driving him to the airport. And the first thing that he asks about is, what do I think about Strickland? And so I'm going to open by sharing what I said to him, which is, I said, I think the whole situation across the board is unfortunate, that the local reporting seems to suggest that the, a number of Catholics, an overwhelming number of Catholics, including clergy and diocesan officials, have had some very serious concerns about the way the diocese has been running and about Bishop Strickland's behavior, his social media presence, his sort of views and perspectives, and the fact that he's often required of parishes uh, a kind of sharing of these views, or at least a proclamation of his own written letters and the sort. And I said that it's my understanding that the Vatican had asked him to resign on November 9th, and he refused to do so. And so Pope Francis took this very serious and very rare position, which is to to formally remove him from his ministry. It's, it's not unheard of. It's happened several times in, in recent years. But I would say that Strickland, because of his, his sort of right-wing following and kind of celebrity, is probably the best known or, or biggest name who has been in this situation. So that's the first thing is that I was struck that in in the state of Texas, here we are in a different diocese, people are talking about it, literally talking about it in car rides and on street corners. You know, it feels like Nicaea or something like this, right? So people are talking about it. The second thing is um, I, I'm really struck by a lot of what I appreciate is the sort of deep dive reporting. And I think Brian Fraga at NCR and other people have been really good about this, including secular media uh, around Tyler and in Texas, to highlight that there's been something of, and David, you noted this as well, a kind of transition or deepening of Strickland's kind of worldviews, a kind of radicalization, we could say. And it's happened actually in very short order since about roughly 2018 through the present. And it's got me thinking about the writer and climate activist Naomi Klein's recent book on doppelgangers and her theory about how there are these within us, these sort of doubles of who we are, and that it's almost like that Jekyll and Hyde trope, right? That that there are some things and some occasions and some people and some circumstances that combine in such a way that somebody sort of snaps in this kind of alternative person is present, at least in their personality. And that's sort of what it sounds like in the case of Bishop Strickland, that when he was first appointed bishop in the early 2010s, he was known to be approachable and kind and probably a little bit more 
quote unquote conservative when it comes to devotional uh, practices and liturgical preferences and the like. But he was known to be affable. He was known to ha like have a blog about his distance running, something I could relate to. I appreciate. But then something happened, and there was, and it's really somewhat mysterious. So. I guess that's the two things I want to begin with is thinking about Strickland not as a one-off case, but maybe as a sort of metonym or an uh, emblematic of something that happens in lots of places and lots of parishes and lots of dioceses, maybe not at that level. As Thanksgiving is approaching, as you're listening to this, maybe on Thanksgiving itself, the famous trope of extended family members and friends who have very differing political views that may have shifted or radicalized in recent years. Strickland is maybe a kind of patron saint for that these days. I really like that framing, Dan, and the encouragement to not think of Bishop Strickland as an isolated case, but rather kind of part of a, a, a wave or a, a, a set of of responses that we can see happening at various places, both in wider American culture, but also specifically in Catholic culture. And I have a question that I want to put to the two of you, both from a journalistic side and from a kind of canon law side. After the removal of Bishop Strickland, as I was paying attention on social media, a lot of commentators of a more conservative mean were all saying that this was a very irregular removal and that it didn't follow normal canonical processes. And I want to put that out there, and I want to get the chance for us to say from reporting and from canon law what the actual case is in terms of whether this was a regular or irregular removal. Well, I'm not a canon lawyer, but I, I will say that from what I gather, everything has been by the books. And I think that's demonstrated by the fact that you had very well-respected bishops lead the Vatican visitation, the Vatican investigation, and that this is not something taken lightly. I'll give two examples of something that's happened in the last decade. One might actually be a little bit longer than a decade, but the there was a diocese in Pennsylvania some years ago. This was when I think either Pope Francis was relatively new. I think that's right. He was relatively new with a bishop who was, again, being quite oppositional and really pushing the boundaries in a way that anticipates the Strickland experience. He was removed from the administration of his diocese and the local metropolitan, who at the time was the cardinal archbishop, or not the cardinal, but the archbishop of Philadelphia, assumed the kind of administrative responsibilities for that church. More recently, this happened in the diocese of Memphis when the former auxiliary bishop of Washington, D.C. was removed after being bishop for really less than a year and a half. It might have even been close to a year because there were serious concerns, mostly administrative, like Strickland. This was not, or the case in Pennsylvania, this was not an issue of clergy abuse or misconduct in that regard, but it has to do with administration. And in the case of Strickland, like the, the, the Pennsylvania case, this had to do with ideological issues as well that were really problematic. I'll also point out that there's a case ongoing right now in, in the Diocese of Fort Worth, also in Texas, where there's a lot of tensions between the local bishop and a community of women's a community of women religious that has gained some news and and Heidi might know more about this as senior correspondent. Well, I will just say that I'm also not a canon lawyer, but what I think is a little bit unusual is that he had to be removed. So, he was asked to resign and would not resign. So, the other bishop also in Tennessee who was removed or was asked to resign earlier this year, Bishop Sticka, not to be confused with Bishop Strickland, went and this was again around mismanagement issues related some of them related to sexual abuse, but when he was asked by the Holy Father to resign, he did resign. And Strickland 
in Tyler, Texas, refused. And the framing that you're talking about this being part of a broader trend is something that I have observed as well, especially in my colleagues reporting from the Bishop's Conference meeting, which followed Strickland's removal. So first of all, the timing of his removal, I thought was very interesting because I think there were a number of people that thought it might happen much earlier. So he was asked to resign. He refused. He's clearly out there on social media saying things that are, you know, schismatic, not accepting the Pope's authority, etc., And yet I think the Pope, I mean, I'm guessing that the Pope didn't want to do this during or right before the Synod meeting in October. So it did come after that, but then right before the U.S. Bishops' Conference meeting, they have every fall in Baltimore. So we had a number of NCR folks there, including, as you mentioned, Dan, my colleague, Brian Fraga, and Bishop Strickland was there. And he did tell Brian that the papal nuncio had asked him not to attend the meeting. And he took that very literally, not to go into the ballroom and be sitting among his brother bishops at the meeting. But he still went to Baltimore and was outside the hotel and occasionally, I think, inside the lobby with supporters of his gathered with him to pray the rosary and protest. And I think what's interesting about these supporters is just what you said, Dan. They frequently use the term truth. He was speaking the truth. And they claim, I think erroneously, in fact, I know erroneously, that Bishop, the Bishop Strickland was removed for speaking the truth, for speaking the truth of our faith. And therefore, this somehow justifies this questioning of Pope Francis. And nothing could be further from the, pardon the pun, truth. (laughs) But that makes for a good storyline in their minds, I think. Yeah, I also think it's Picking up again on Klein's theory of doppelganger, which I, I can't recommend that book enough to folks if, if you're looking for something to read over the holidays. Um, it's really fascinating. She shares her own experience of being confused with another person with the same first name, Naomi Wolf, who, well, you read the book, you can learn the story. But this idea of this kind of flipping that's going on, I've seen it even in the last couple of weeks with some colleagues of mine in another context where just odd, this notion of truth, for instance, and perspective gets really twisted and distorted. And it's interesting to see this sort of play out. I'm thinking of a a small book that was published some years ago during the Trump administration called After Truth, I think it was, or Beyond Truth, something like this, and that we live in this age where, as uh, former President Trump's press secretary or, or advisor at one point described his basically untruth as, quote, alternative facts. And so we live in this sort of topsy-turvy world at this time where I believe the so-called supporters of Bishop Strickland see themselves as righteous, see themselves as authentic, see themselves as sincere. There is no sort of gravitational center anymore, which reminds me of two things to pick up on something you were saying, Heidi, which is I I was really struck in this conversation with this young man in the Uber, uh, the Uber ride to the airport, where he was saying he he, he concurred with the the few remarks that I made, just generally speaking. And then he said, you know, the thing that really strikes him is that to be authentically Catholic is to be, you know, he didn't use the language of in communion. It's something I would say, but in communion with the Bishop of Rome. And I picked up on that to say the little theology lecture there. That, yeah, the church is a communion of communions, and which that's why we say the name of the local bishop at the Eucharistic prayer and the Bishop of Rome. And what, what Strickland was doing, probably most egregiously, was raising very legitimate questions against himself and whether or not he was in communion with Rome, which is serious because the 112,000 Catholics in the church of Tyler, Texas, 
that is the symbol of their unity in communion with the Roman Catholic Church. So that's a really important thing. It's not about picking a side or this sort of thing. And and Strickland is not in a position to be speaking, quote unquote, truth to Pope Francis, uh, quite the opposite, actually, in this case. The last thing I'll say is to flag, we live in an age, and I know this is a, a, a particular interest of David's, of what um, some theologians have referred to as the, quote, digital magisterium, that there was a note in one of the reports that Bishop Strickland has more followers on Twitter than he does physical Catholics in the church of, of Tyler, Texas, that, that he's responsible for. And so I'm thinking about the great work of about maybe a decade ago or so of uh, theologians Vince Miller and uh, Tony Godziba, who who helped think about some of this. And I think there's more work that needs to be done because the truth is people are bishop shopping. And these people who showed up in Baltimore, as you call them, Heidi, they call themselves supporters of Bishop Strickland. Unless they're from the Diocese of Tyler, he's not their bishop. He is a bishop somewhere else. I really appreciate the turn that the conversation has taken. And longtime listeners know that this is a conversation that Dan and I return to through the various years of the Francis Effect. And I've often, both on the show and under social media, come to exactly the point that you've just made, Dan, which is like a bishop's uh, authority ends at the edges of the diocese, and we don't have a kind of bishop that's able to speak globally unless we're talking about the pontiff, the, the holy pontiff, the holy father. But now I want to flip that on its head and ask a pastoral question, because a couple of years ago, a listener actually pushed back against that and said, yes, but what do we do when we are in a local diocese where we have a bishop who is so full of this kind of right wing or this kind of conservative, exclusive kind of approach to the church? And I'd really love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I guess I'll jump in here, too, because I know this is a point that you have made before, Dan, and I've heard it from my colleague, Michael Sean Winters, as well. And I agree. I get that that is how the church is set up, is that the bishop is responsible for his geographic area. But I think this that sort of the toothpaste is out of the tube on this. Given the communication channels that we have these days, it's pretty impossible to say, don't be influenced or don't be interested or don't be somehow following what a bishop in another diocese in another state or in, even in another country might be doing. And I know that I personally, for example, have been inspired by Romero in El Salvador. And he wasn't, I, I didn't pretend he was my bishop and could do my kids' confirmation or anything if they had been alive at the same time. But there was an inspiration there and a, and a quote unquote following. And on the progressive side, I think we have had examples even before the internet. For example, at NCR, for a longtime columnist, Bishop Gumbleton was writing for NCR, and he was a bishop in Michigan and not the bishop nationally to progressive Catholics, but many of them continued to follow his homilies. So I guess, Dan, I'm sure you'd be able to get this to a more like what the difference is between those two things, but I think we have to be careful and say that I don't think it's possible possible to say, only care about what your bishop in your geographic area is doing. Well, I don't think I'm saying that, or David, to be fair to both of us, neither of us have said that. It's not don't care about or be inspired by or be enraged by. That's perfectly fine. <laughs> you know, that is the situation in which we find ourselves, hence this language of, quote, digital magisterium. How do we understand the boundaries of authority? Well, the church's theology is very clear about that, as David reiterated a minute ago. Like, the boundaries are clear. So the issue isn't so-and-so 
finds Bishop Strickland inspiring or likes to follow him on Twitter or whatnot. The problem is when people say he is the protector of truth and I'm following him over against my local bishop. There it is. So yes. that's that's the big issue. There's a difference between authority. And the thing is, the truth is now, as Strickland himself, to his credit, acknowledged in, I think it was actually that interview on the street with Brian, that he's there, he has a right as a bishop, as an ordained bishop, whose faculties haven't been removed, or at least his he hasn't been laicized like Theodore McCarrick, for, for example. He has a right to go to the assembly, even if he doesn't have a diocese anymore, right? So he has no magisterial authority. He is not the bishop of anything. He is an ordained bishop. He's a bishop without a church. And so... I think that's really important to realize so that when you have folks who are flocking, pun intended, to Baltimore to support him and say, well, he is the bearer of truth, he, there, there, there's an implicit, if theologically inadequate, understanding or assumption that he is somehow has authority to teach on behalf of the church or in, in, to exercise ordinary magisterium, which he does not. And that's the significant thing about him being removed. Why is that meaningful? Because d- despite people's appreciation or detraction, he, he is now just another Catholic like us without a ministry, without authority. And that I think you're right, Heidi, to say like most, I would say 99% of people don't understand that distinction. And I think that actually is the invitation for theologians to do really important work, both academically and trying to understand what does it mean in a digital age and an age of rapid communication, but what does it mean also pastorally? So how does it get translated so so people understand that? Because I think it is very confusing, and we see that in lots of ways. I want to ask one other question, and, and this now takes a kind of historical bent. So we look back through the history of the Church, and we can see times when there have been distinct conflicts of who is the authority in a given diocese. I think of some of the various persecutions during the early centuries of the Church. And so I want to put it out there. Is this moment a crisis for the Catholic Church, or is this yet another iteration of an ongoing centuries-long set of conversations about authority? Should we be panicking or worried at this moment because of this eruption, you know, Bishop Strickland doing these uh, things of coming right to the edge of the USCCB meeting, or is this just part of the ongoing conversation around Catholic authority? Speaking historically, I think probably the most prominent example is the Avignon Papacy and then the time where there were three people vying to be the Bishop of Rome, none of whom, you know, it's a complicated historical period, and yet we weathered that. I I think that's important to remember. So does the Strickland case illustrate a crisis? I would say it's disturbing. It's unfortunate. As I said to this Uber driver, I, I think it's really sad on lots of levels across the board. But we have been going through and are continuing to go through lots of other crises right now. I'm thinking of the sexual abuse crisis and its cover-up. I'm thinking about the kind of politicization, uh, particularly with one wing of one political party in the United States that the majority of of the bishops seem to be aligned with. Um, Maybe they haven't gotten to the point of Strickland, but we see this as a kind of crisis. I guess I hesitate to use the the word crisis, David, because though there is, I think, a real potential for schism. And I think that's what people are waiting to see. It's happened before with Lefebvre. We see this with other people as well. I I don't know. Right now, technically, 
Bishop Strickland is a Catholic member of the community. He has not been described as having done something that is de facto excommunicating, which is how it works. So we'll see. That can change. That can change. His rhetoric is really quite on the boundary of that, to be honest with you. So that will be up to the Vatican. It'll be up to the CDF. It'll be up to the Holy Father and the nuncio with the advice of the local metropolitan archbishop, in this case, it's Cardinal DiNardo, to be assessing this as, as time goes on. So I, th- I also would hesitate to use the term crisis, although I think it is problematic. It once again sends a message to the outside world, and again, this was a story big enough to be picked up by the major secular newspapers, that there's this controversy within the church between these extreme right-wing people who are not only like pro-Trump, and you mentioned in the introduction uh, Altman from, from Wisconsin, but also that the, within the church that people who don't even accept the authority of the Pope and the Pope having to step in because they refuse to even take his advice to step down. So I think that's not a good look for the U.S. Catholic Church. And I do appreciate, and it may be similar to the Lefebvre incident as well, be, that Pope's Francis are trying to keep everyone in the church, even though they're really dancing near the edge, and that the default is not to split up and have schism, but to say, let's try to keep you in, even though you're just really being extreme about something. So I think as we watch that, it's not a happy thing to see, but hopefully not a crisis on the scale of some things historically. David, and I think you also asked about how do we discern this? How do we interpret it? And I think building on what Heidi was saying and bringing it back to an observation you had about tensions and controversy among the baptized from the beginning of the church, I'm thinking about the so-called Council of Jerusalem, right? Where you had this debate between Peter and Paul about what was necessary to join this community of following Christ. Do you have to convert to Judaism first or not? Is, is it Can Greeks, can pagans come in, et cetera, et cetera? And the result through communal discernment, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, though there were two very different arguments on the floor, Paul won out, as it were, over Peter, who we have by tradition as the first pope. And and I think there's an opportunity here for us to realize two things. One is it's dialogical and synodal. This is how decisions and interpretation and discernment takes place in the church. And I think Pope Francis gets that intuitively. The second thing is building on what Heidi was just saying about the need to keep people together. Well, folks can opt out. Right, And that's excommunication. You move out of communion with the rest of the body of Christ. That's what that means. And so the choice will really be Strickland's. And whether he does something that will be named, if it's named as excommunicative, then it's identified as that's what he has done. But you're not punished by excommunication, contrary to popular belief. But the reason I bring this up in the Council of Jerusalem in particular is because I think one criterion that we can apply to which approach is more in keeping with church tradition and scripture and and divine inspiration, I would say the one that in, that is most capacious and inclusive. So the one wasn't, there was a narrower route in this conversation with Peter and Paul, and then there was a more inclusive route. And I think Pope Francis sees a church in which we are called to be inclusive. If you don't want to be a part of that inclusive effort to bring the kingdom of God into reality, following in the footsteps of Jesus, we can't make you do that. But nor should we you know, I think it's antithetical to our tradition to push people out. And I think Strickland is of that camp of wanting to push people out, right? And I think that's part of what we see play out. And I think is a good way to a litmus test of sorts for thinking about what, what Heidi was just saying about this need to bring people together, keep people together. I really appreciate the turn 
that you made there at the end towards an ethic of hospitality. And as we've been having this conversation, you're both kind of putting this into a pastoral and a historical context. I'm so glad that we grounded there. And as we're moving forward into the 2024 election cycle, we can just anticipate that the pressures are going to mount, and we're probably going to see more leaders of the church taking some extreme positions in the public sphere, as Bishop Strickland has. And so as we're moving forward to that, I think being prepared with a heart that is grounded in hospitality is exactly the right way to proceed. And speaking of the 2024 election cycle, in our next segment, we're going to be picking up on recent threats to the Voting Rights Act. So we're headed there next. This is The Francis Effect. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dalt. Well, you know the routine. Every couple of weeks, we get together to talk about lots of things from a lens of our shared Catholic faith. As we head into the 2024 elections, the state of Arkansas is poised to become the latest battleground for the protection of voting rights in America, particularly for persons of color. At stake is a pivotal interpretation of Section 2 of the landmark Voting Rights Act. In the decades since it became law in 1965, Courts have maintained the precedent that is not just the task of government to enforce the Section 2 provisions, but that anyone, whether an individual or a group of private citizens, could bring a Section 2-related case to court. Historically, it has been these private groups that have brought the majority of challenges when voting maps are redrawn by conservative legislatures to disenfranchise minority voters. All that changed in February 2022 when U.S. District Judge Lee Radofsky, an appointee of former President Donald Trump, ruled that only the U.S. Attorney General can bring Section 2 lawsuits. In that ruling, Judge Radofsky dismissed an Arkansas redistricting case brought by advocacy groups representing African-American voters in the state. Earlier this week, that lower court ruling was upheld in a two-to-one vote by a three-judge panel of the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. This ruling now applies to cases that are being brought in the states of Arkansas, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, North Dakota, and South Dakota. This latest ruling comes after the Arkansas State Conference NAACP and the Arkansas Public Policy Panel filed a Section 2 lawsuit over Arkansas State House map, arguing that it dilutes the voting power of black people. Lawyers for the two organizations have said they will now pursue other avenues to try to ensure voting rights protections for citizens in the state. Meanwhile, Arkansas State Attorney General Tim Griffin, whose office is defending the Republican politicians on Arkansas's apportionment board and the map they approved, said Monday's decision by the panel is, quote, a victory for our citizens and for the rule of law, unquote. Other states, including Alabama and Georgia, have also seen more positive recent court decisions surrounding the Section 2 provisions of the Voting Rights Act. This means that, at least until the Supreme Court weighs in, we are going into 2024 with entire regions of America operating under vastly different interpretations of this law. David, you've been keeping your eye on this for a while now. What should we be thinking about this? Well, I want to go back to what 
Tim Griffin, the attorney general there in the state of Arkansas, said when he said that this is a victory for our citizens and for the rule of law. And I'm thinking about a quotation from Hannah Arendt in The Origins of Totalitarianism, where she talks about how when states begin to move in a more authoritarian and then eventually totalitarian direction, you begin to have lawfulness without legality. In other words, you have things like the the laws of nature interrupting the political process of actually making decisions together. And so you have here a kind of appeal to the rule of law. And we Catholics, we love to talk about natural law, and we love to talk about canon law, as if these things just exist neutrally for everyone, and we just point to them and they answer and interpret themselves for us. But they don't. These things have to be worked out in real time, and the words on the page matter, and the interpretation of the words on the page in real time matter. And in this particular case, as has been the case for decades and decades, the the matter of the matter, where this matters, is in the bodies of the vulnerable. And so we are seeing right now entire populations, and in some cases, majority populations of states being disenfranchised from the process of making decisions that affect their lives. And that's in terms of leadership, but also in terms of of other sorts of of uses of the electoral process. And so I want to just bring this in a Catholic sense down to a question of subsidiarity. When someone like uh, a Republican legislature or a a Republican-leaning attorney general makes the kind of leveraging move where people are being unable or are being denied the ability to actually speak up and have a voice in their lives, and then they say, and we're doing this in the name of law, there's something deeply flawed happening. And so as a Catholic who is committed to the idea of subsidiarity where the people who are affected by a decision, the decision-making apparatus is closely linked to those effects, we're seeing the opposite of that here, where the decision-making apparatus is being taken out of the hands of the people that will be affected by it. And I'm deeply troubled by it. I'm very interested in what the two of you are thinking about this as well. Well, you, I think you've summarized it well, David, and I've been using this word that was part of a talk I covered about a week and a half ago with uh, Jesuit Father Patty Gilger, who gave a talk at Loyola University's Hank Center, and I covered it, and he was talking about de-democratization. So this process by which, not just in the United States, but around the world, democratic institutions are under attack and are failing in some ways, or at least starting to crumble, and how very disturbing this is. And his particular talk was about what the church might do about that. And it was a creative um, angle. We can put the link to the uh, coverage of his talk in our show notes. But he thought the church had a role, and it was very spiritual. It was about individuals need to practice democracy, not just institutions. And he thought that Catholic spirituality could really help individuals be in that place that they need to be to have the public sphere where we can disagree with one another. But 
institutions, if again, if we have these institutions literally blocking or making it difficult for people to, for their votes to count, where we have so much gerrymandering that we have minority rule in states and in other regions, I think that then things are very concerning. When I appreciated how this was in the context of as we move towards the presidential election, because I think we're seeing increasingly this become what at least some people are trying to make the election about with the comments that former President Trump is making about what he might do in a second term with a number of people from his administration stepping forward and saying to save democracy, we can't uh, have another Trump presidency. I think that we're finding out that this is going to be something that everyone's going to have to pay attention to. And these kinds of decisions, again, like you said, David, under the guise of the rule of law are deeply disturbing and should be disturbing to us as Catholics as well. Yeah, I am very disturbed as a Catholic, but also as a citizen of the United States. I I was struck, David, by uh, the report of what Arkansas State Attorney General Tim Griffin was saying about this being a victory. You emphasize the rule of law, but he mentioned a victory, quote, for our citizens. And I'm thinking about this on two levels. The first is the famous Latin quote, cui bono, like who benefits from this? And I think the fact that, yes, some citizens do, they tend to look like you and me. They tend to be white cisgender guys who are in positions of leadership, like in the Arkansas state legislature, who uh, are in the United States Congress and so forth, a disproportionately representative number of a very small kind of subset of our society. And I think that's really problematic. So it's not a victory for our citizens. It's a victory for those who have traditionally held power, who continue to hold power, wittingly and unwittingly. And I think, yeah, there are, there's a racialized element to this. There's a gendered element to this. There's a class element to this. You know, who has access to power? Who has a right of voice and a right of vote? Which leads me to the second way I'm thinking about this, right? I'm thinking about Gaudium et Spes and the church's teaching about what our role is in society. And we spend a lot of time on this podcast emphasizing the core teaching around the common good, which is part and parcel of what the Catholic view of government is. But the other thing that strikes me comes from uh, paragraph four, if my memory serves me right, in Gaudium et Spes, which it calls all Christians, all the baptized, as members of the church in the modern world to interpret the signs of our times in the light of the gospel. In other words, take a look at what's going on to ask questions like cui bono, who is benefiting from this, and then interpret those facts, interpret those dynamics and circumstances according to the gospel. And I keep falling back on every parable of Jesus's, which prioritizes, uplifts the most marginalized, the most powerless, the most voiceless, and centers them. Whether it's the homeless, dying leper named Lazarus outside the door of the rich man, whether it is the unnamed women who Jesus constantly reaches out to, and those who are named, right, that bear really real significance and import. I think of his parables, right, about the fact that we operate with a certain kind of, as St. Paul would say, worldly or wisdom or logic, but in fact, the kingdom operates according to a very different kind of logic that results in, as Jesus says in John's gospel, a peace that the world cannot give. And yet actions like this, falsities like a victory for our citizens that are proclaimed by people in power who want to maintain their own narrow sliver of power over everybody else is flies in the face of what Christian life is all about. And so that's how I'm thinking about it at this point. I also think it's interesting, and we talked about this in the last segment a little bit about the U.S. bishops meeting, which was held uh, last week, that this 
very urgent issue of people grabbing power and de-democratization did not come up among our church leaders when they met in November. And in fact, when they went to do something about politics in our country at all, it was to uh, reapprove a, a new introduction to an old document that ignores so many of these really major issues facing our country and instead had a bit of a debate about whether abortion should be a preeminent priority or our preeminent priority. And they eventually went for our preeminent priority, I guess, to affirm that it's not one among many. It is the only thing that we care about or church leaders care about. And I just think, meanwhile, around them, de-democratization is happening and it should be of concern. We're taping this right after the election in Argentina, where we're seeing how this is an international concern as well, and yet crickets from our church leaders on this. I am so grateful for both of your comments. Dan, what you were saying about Gaudium et Spes and and having the interpretation of the times in light of the gospel and what that means for us ethically, and Heidi, your naming the silence and not just the the single silence, but the repeating silence of the bishops around these important moments. So we can look back a few months and the refusal of the bishops to talk about synodality during the height of the synod and synodality preparations, and instead wanting to talk about the Eucharist. And now we have a threat to democracy and the bishops again refusing to want to actually name or address with any authority this threat to democracy and instead wanting to talk about abortion. And so there's this constant sort of sense that our leadership, at least in the American church, keeps pointing somewhere else saying, look over there, look over there, when there's a fire burning in front of us. And what can we as laity do about that? I don't know, other than to prayerfully interpret the signs of the times in light of the gospel, which means, in addition, interpreting the inactivity or the hesitancy, or dare I say the cowardice of the bishops in these key moments. Yeah, I'll just say a couple things that that come to mind in light of our conversation, which I think is important. One is when we talk about as laity, you mentioned that, David, I want to go back to something that's been reaffirmed, certainly in the synodal discussions, but was stated, restated very clearly at Vatican II and Lumen Gentium, the church's dogmatic constitution on the church itself, which is that there is no degree of importance that varies apart from baptism. We have different roles, right? Paul talks about this in the New Testament in terms of the many, we are many parts, one body. But I'm sorry, a bishop or even even a, 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 um, a gathering of bishops like the USCCB is not more important than every other baptized person in the church. They just have a different responsibility and role. And we can debate whether they're actually exercising that responsibility appropriately. And I think what I'm hearing is that there's a consensus or at least a concern that there's an abdication or an omission here, which is, I would agree with that. So I think that's really important. So what can we do? Well, we are the church, and I think that's really important. And so voices are important. I think these kinds of conversations are important. And I think the church is not a democracy, so I don't think you need to write to your bishop in the same way you would write to your representative in Congress, but you can write to your bishop. Your bishop has a responsibility as the pastoral, the primary pastoral leader in the local church. So, you know, that that's something to think about. 
The other thing, and this might sound harsh, but the more we've been talking about, we see these common sort of themes recurring that this ignoring of the pressing signs of our times, we see the sort of antipathy when it comes to an inclusive understanding of church that is reflected in the Gospels and that Pope Francis certainly models in his own ministry and teaching by a lot of these U.S. bishops, I'm reminded, as I tell my students often, that Jesus reserves his animosity insofar as there's divine righteous anger, not for those who have been accused of sexual sins like adultery, not for those who have committed felonies like embezzlement, like tax collectors, not for those who have actually murdered other people like those beside him on the cross. He reserves his harshest and exclusive criticism for religious hypocrites. And so I will invoke the words of Jesus, according to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, woe to you, religious leaders, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. Whoa. I agree. But I also believe, and I appreciate that we are the church and we all have common baptism. On the other hand, the role that church leaders have is leadership. And leadership can set the tone for priorities and can bring issues to the debate and name the agenda, for example. And I think that's what's lacking in too much of our leadership. Now, there are other church leaders who are who may be lay, who run publications, who teach in universities, who I think are exercising leadership and naming these things. But you're right. We do all have a role. And certainly because it affects us as U.S. citizens, as well as Catholics, we have a right and responsibility to step up with these issues. And I would just follow up too. I think that's a really good point, Heidi. I would also just add that leadership in the church, pastoral leadership that the bishops are meant to exercise is not intended to be unidirectional. That's the whole message of the church's teaching around synodality, the whole message of Lumen Gentium that we are the body of Christ. The process of even magisterial teaching does not just come to the mind as if through some direct inspiration or revelation to a bishop or to a group of bishops to then tell us, the non-bishops, how to live and be and think. It's meant to be dialogical. It's meant to be arising. I always use the example, the historical example in the 4th, 5th, and 6th century of the very slow process of acknowledging in a formal, dogmatic way the absolute divinity of the Holy Spirit. That was not clear in the Council of Nicaea. It was not clear in the Council of Chalcedon. People are often shocked to, to learn that it took five centuries, in part because there was this conversation among church leaders over many generations with the people of God, all the baptized who came to understand the divinity of the Holy Spirit through liturgy, through worship, through conversation, through theological reflection, and in, in reading scripture. And so we have a role to play, and it's the bishop's responsibility to consult the faithful, as St. John Henry Newman said, right? This is not, and St. Augustine, for that matter, 1,600 years ago. So I agree with you. There, And in this case, I would say then there's a failure of leadership, which brings me back to Another quote of Jesus's when he says, you leaders, he criticizes his own faith community's leaders, you put unnecessary burdens on the shoulders of others and fail to even lift a finger to help them. So I want to dig back into my former history before I became Catholic, the 15 years I spent as a Quaker. And I love the turn that we've taken here in the back part of this conversation towards synodality and the kind of mutual dialogue of synodality. And the particular tradition of Quakers that I was a part of were part of were known as the silent meeting Quakers, where 
friends would sit in silence for maybe an hour, and during that time, we would expect that the Holy Spirit would be moving, and most of the time the Holy Spirit would be moving in silence, but sometimes the Holy Spirit would be moving and someone would be prompted to rise and to give a testimony or to give a message from the Spirit. And there's an entire discernment process that we jokingly use with this, and that discernment process ends with a very clear question. After you've discerned that this is a message that is not just coming from you, but is coming from beyond you, and it's not just for you, but it's for those who are around you, the final question is, must you speak? Do you have to speak at this moment? And I think we may be reaching moments in our synodality where the laity must speak. And I really like the framing of it because it's not a unidirectional speaking from the leadership to us. We may be at a point where we are being prompted by the Spirit to very clearly articulate the experience that we have of the Spirit's intervention in our lives. Amen to that. And so this is a wonderful point to pivot and to move to the next part of our episode today, where Heidi is going to be speaking to my colleague Timon Davis from the Institute of Pastoral Studies about thankfulness and about spirituality and about the movements of the Spirit that are being encountered here among us even now. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Please stay with us. to the Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf with today's guest, theologian Timon Davis. Dr. Davis is Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University in Chicago. And yes, that is where our co-host David Dalt is also on faculty, so they are colleagues. Dr. Davis also is an associate convener of the Black Catholic Theological Symposium, and she is the author of the book, Intergenerational Catechesis, Revitalizing Faith Through African-American Storytelling. She and her husband, Orlando, are the founders of Peace-Centered Wholeness, where they blend clinical counseling and spiritual companioning. She's a sought-after speaker and also preaches for the website Catholic Women Preach. So I heard Dr. Davis speak on the topic of Sabbath at last year's L.A. Religious Ed Congress, and let me tell you, the crowd was riveted. I remember thinking, we need to get her on the Francis Effect podcast, so here we are. I've invited Dr. Davis to talk to us about gratitude, but I know all kinds of other spiritual topics will come up. So welcome to the Francis Effect, Dr. Davis. Thank you. Thank you, Heidi, very much. I'm so glad to be here. Finally, I have my turn. Yes, we're so glad to have you. And she's coming all the way from uh, the way West Coast. (laughs) (laughs) So as I said, because it's Thanksgiving week, we invited you here to talk about gratitude. I think it's thanks to Oprah Winfrey, maybe, that this focus on gratitude 
has become a spiritual practice for many people in our contemporary society. I know people who keep gratitude journals, for example. Can you talk a little bit about how you see gratitude as a spiritual practice, or do you even see it as fitting in with our Catholic spirituality? I think gratitude is often overlooked as a spiritual practice, right? So many things are wrong in the world. There's so much suffering that we go down the rabbit hole of suffering and that gratitude gets lost until we can focus on it, right? Until, so you mentioned the the gratitude journal. If we don't take the time to just be aware of what is good, then gratitude gets lost, right? I remember working with a a young woman some years ago and she told me, I I don't think I wanna keep meeting with you because I'm just going nowhere. And this is a waste of your time and mine. She was probably at 22 at this point. And I said, when we started this, you were 18, and these were the various things that were going on in your life. And now at 22, these are the things, and look at the progress. She said, well, I never thought about that because I was so focused on all the things that were still wrong. And so gratitude asks that we shift into the things that are going well. And that's hard because the world is set up for us to consume things to make our life better, not to consume things that fit into a world of gratitude. And so as a spiritual practice, I think it's definitely needed, but all of us need it. I I go down the rabbit hole too sometimes thinking about what's not working. And I've shifted. So what helped me shift? I put my mother in memory care last December. So she's coming up on a year of being in in memory care. And I went down the rabbit hole of, I can no longer care for my mother. I'm a bad child. I should be able to care for my mother. This is, you know, I should suck it up. And I just went that whole route until someone said to me, didn't you care for your mom for about seven years? And I was like, well, yeah. And they said, okay, so didn't you care for her until you couldn't? And I was like, yeah. And and they said, so isn't that a good thing? That you were aware that you could no longer care for her and you found a place that could care for her. So it's taken me this whole year, right, to sit with those words. And I began to see all of the great times I had with my mom over the seven years. And I began all of the hard problems, right, that come along with caring for someone who has dementia, those began to diminish. 
Like those are very, those are inconsequential to me now, which loomed so large before. And so shifting into gratitude of being able to be with my mom and spend that time with my mom has helped me look at the goodness of having that time. And now she's in a place that is actually taking care of her better than I could in terms of activities and exercise and stuff like that. So gratitude. Yes. Do we do need to do it more than uh, Thanksgiving? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And so we all go around the table at Thanksgiving and say what we're thankful for in the last year. I know that's a common practice. Are there, you're, you're talking about like a real mental shift that's required, but are there other ways to concretize or to make that mental shift? What helped you or what do you suggest for other people to be able to make it intentional, as you said, because if we don't make it intentional, we don't do it. I think the first thing is when we have our negative thought is to take a breath and then go, all right, but what's positive about this, right? Is to make the, can I find something good in this situation? Typically we want to say, no, I'm catching hell right about now. But a deep breath and a pause, right? That takes us back to the Sabbath piece, right? That you mentioned that talk. If we can incorporate Sabbath into our daily living and not Sabbath in just our Sunday, then we're able to incorporate gratitude, right? And so I start from a place of disgruntledness, right? So when you go into a store and the associate who helps you is disgruntled, Every so often I may ask, did you just find out that you're not going to get paid for the shift that you're working? And it catch, catches the person off guard. And they're like, no. And it's, oh, okay, so there must be something else that's going on that's bothering you. Right? And inevitably people will start, oh, well, this and this is going on. I'm like, yeah, but isn't it great to have a job to complain about? Right. So just really shifting in those moments. Right. Can I shift? Can I invite you to shift and say, yes, I'm inconvenienced right now. But what is the good in it? Are you able to look out the window and see whether or not it's the sun or the rain? Well, you have the ability to look out the window. What's happening for people who are at war? Are they, they can't even look out the windows, right? People are hiding. People are trying to survive. What's happening when you turn on the tap in your apartment, your house, your loft, water comes out and more than likely it's clean water. Can we be grateful for the fact that you didn't have to go get a dirty bucket and walk a mile to try to find clean water? So I'm inviting people not just into comparison, but into a reality check of your circumstance and then go search for the other side, that goodness. Oh, I like that phrase, not comparison, but reality check. I want to shift just a bit to some other spiritual practices. And I don't know how much you've been following the synod that our church is going through, but we've been talking about it a lot here on the podcast, this multi-year synodal process, and then the series of meetings 
with over 400 people in Rome during the month of October. And as we've been talking about that with a number of people, including our guest last time, who was a Synod participant, I'm struck by a couple themes that keep coming up when people talk about their process of conversations in the spirit. So they were at these round tables, bishops and lay people for the first time, having conversations. And two things came up that I know you have written and spoken about. So the first is storytelling. So each person at the Synod got to tell a little bit of their story and also some of the stories of people they were bringing to the process. And then also the process involved silence. So there was a lot made about how one person would speak and then before it was, and they didn't, couldn't respond to each other, but even before it was the next ter- person's turn to share, there were these moments of silence. So tell me a little bit if either of those storytelling and silence, how can we bring those into our individual lives or into our communities, including like the whole church with the synod? Any thoughts about that? I looked at the process of the spiritual conversations and I found it interesting, right? I think, I think it's an important process when dealing with groups of people who often talk over each other and who often ignore other voices, right? So the process ensures that a person speaks and a person is heard. So I think it's great in that it does that. How it differs from my process of my story, your story, is that our stories don't exist on their own. They exist in dialogue with other stories. And so my critique of the process is that it doesn't make enough room for our responses, right? My story, your story, it makes room for in the moment response to what another person is saying. How am I moved by what is being spoken or what I am hearing? How am I moved by it first? And then how does it connect to me? Is we're looking for connections. In this world where we're talking about we want to shift away from systems of racism and oppression and sexism and clericalism, well, none of that happens without dialogue, but you can't, but you have to make room for the dialogue, right? And so there has to be a point in which I can intersect with you in a real way. And so the, the synodal process of, of listening, right? Having silence. And then the next person speaks says for me, All of those stories get out there, but they don't get interacted with in a way that I feel we would wrestle with in dialogue, right? So what you and I are having right now is a a dialogue. So one of the things you asked me early on, not in our conversation now, by email, was do I want the questions in advance, right? And I was like, no, I, I don't. The, the questions need to arise 
out of the conversation that we're having because whatever our dialogue is, your questions may even shift, right? So let's make room for that. That way I'm not rehearsed and what people will actually get is what am I thinking right now in our conversation as it's based upon my life, right? They're not getting anything rehearsed. And I believe that storytelling using the my story, your story method allows us to be live on the ground with one another to interact in a way that is life giving and allows for or makes room for the struggle, right? For a loss of words, for misunderstanding, for conflict, so that we can talk it out. We can't continue to create processes that don't help us deal with the conflict, the suffering, and the struggle. And part of the synodal process doesn't yet get to, for me, it doesn't yet get to the ways in which people are suffering so that we can hit it head on and then let's address it. So it's my understanding, since we're not in the room, that there is some time for response, right? But like you are pointing out, that's limited and not in the moment. And it makes me wonder if the organizers decided that it was more important, the first thing that you said, that people tend to talk over one another, that they had to make a process that at least allowed for that. Right. Um, and that maybe we can be hopeful that the same folks are getting together next October, that maybe they'll have more of that. Yeah. That realness of the conflict and the struggle. Yeah. Cause Heidi, when you think about it, let's say it's, let's say it's five people at that table. Right. And you go around and I get to speak first. And so I say whatever it is that I want to share at that moment. And then there's a period of silence. And four people respond, right? So we just take turns to talk about what it is that they heard me say or how it made them feel. Okay, then what happens? It's not like I get to interact with all four people because it's the next person's turn. And so how do we fully deal with and engage all of the things that come up after each person has had their turn, there's a lot that comes up. How do we engage that? Because I don't think we have, they have the whole day in which to engage that material that has come up in those conversations. I know that you have a particular expertise in terms of writing about and working with young people. There's been a lot made in our church about the declining affiliation with institutional religion among young people. And I double-checked some of the stats from the Pew 
the Pew data that says this is even true in the African-American community as well. So I know a lot of people are worried about that. And do you have any advice or what are your thoughts about that for church leaders or often for parents and grandparents who I know are often worried about this? For church leaders in particular, first, we have to make room. And we're not making room, right? We, and and I'm going to say we because I know I'm part of the system and the structure, but we talk about we want young people in, but we don't bring young people alongside us, right? I've moved away from mentoring and into apprenticeship. We don't apprentice people. We hold positions, but we don't apprentice, right? And I think we need to look at our ministries and the positions that are there in terms of apprenticeship. We can't ask a a young person to come into our churches and be parts of ministry that we don't make room for them to be a part. Being a part of ministry is not set up and take down, is not emptying the trash, right? It's being at the table to actually have a voice. It's not being at the table because a young person is now on our committee, but that young person is not taken seriously when they open up their mouth and have something to say, and they don't have advocates. And so we need to be apprenticing with these, with people. One, one of the things I said a long time ago, when I started in young adult ministry, I'm looking to train my replacement. I'm going to reach a certain age and I just don't feel like it's, it's not great to say that I've been in young adult ministry for 30 years. (laughs) I don't think that's, that's not helpful, especially if I'm in young adult ministry for 30 years, the same way that I was in young adult ministry when I started. Right. But if I'm going to be in young adult ministry for 30 years, then do I have a group of young leaders that I have mentored and apprenticed? right? That I I should have a team. If I'm going to be 30 years in something, where's my team? Where's the development? Where are the people that are doing the direct ministry while I do some budgeting and administrative things? I I think we don't make room and we got to stop playing around with young people just don't want to be involved. Young people do want to be involved, but here's the difference. Young people today are not going to sit and wait their turn, right? Young people today are like, oh, you don't have room for me? Well, I can go and do it outside of the church. We're not listening to what they have to say. And we're not interacting with what they have to say. We're not allowing ourselves to be challenged by what they have to say in order for us to grow. So in the book, when I'm talking about intergenerational catechesis, I'm talking about all of those voices need to be there so that we can be challenged by all of those voices, Hmm. right? Uh, When we think about family gatherings include as many generations as we can possibly have at our gathering. And we figure out how to communicate with one another from the newborn to the elder. We're all in the same room. We're all trying to get to the same table. 
Why are we not doing that in our churches? That's so perceptive as we're about to gather around those tables later this week for one holiday. And then once Thanksgiving is over, I know many people have already jumped the gun to the next holiday, but I, we start on December 3rd, I believe this year, our season, our liturgical season of Advent. Yeah. And so I was wondering if you could leave our listeners with any advice or thoughts about that. There's a lot of Sometimes we hear some criticism about how Advent gets eclipsed in the commercialization of Christmas. And the I know people that put up their Christmas trees like the day after Halloween now. So it's just really gotten to be an early thing. What about that season of waiting and anticipation? Are there some spiritual thoughts or practices that you could talk about for that? You know, when I was growing up, I didn't even know that the season of Advent existed when I was growing up. I learned about Advent when I started seminary. And I was like, oh, wow, is that what they were doing up there? I didn't, it didn't make any sense. They was just changing colors and saying some prayers that didn't seem to trickle down to anything. And so when I think about Advent now, I think about what an opportunity the church gives us to really think about our lives and what it means to prepare for Jesus. What does that really mean to prepare for Jesus? There's the expectation that Jesus is already here, right? Jesus is already here. Jesus has already died for me, blah, 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 blah. And so Jesus is here. But Advent says, yeah, but... Let's spend some time really reflecting on have I really prepared my life for a life with Jesus? What does that mean? What are the things that I think Advent is actually much more difficult than Lent? Hmm. Right? Lent, oh yeah, I'm going to give up something. I'm going to do it. I'm going to give it up and then I'm going to be better. I'm going to be a better person because Lent always seems to follow behind the New Year's resolution. Right. And so we're we're on that give up high, that uh, sacrifice high. But Advent says that I know something good is about to happen. And ask that I interrogate my life to say, how am I aligning my life with that good? Hmm. Right. And so the preparation says, let's, let's shine a light where I need to make some preparations, where I need to maybe clear out some things. Because you think about the advancing of light for Advent, right? From one candle to four. We're slowly but surely shining light in our dark areas. The dark areas, not just physically, with the light, physical light, but internally, we're shedding a little more light. And so as we prepare for Advent, I would ask, because that's this is what I'm preparing to do, what light do I need to shine on what area of my life this year that needs to be interrogated and worked on for the goodness of Jesus, who is coming again 
And again, I, I think we lose the fact that Jesus keeps being born again for us. Hmm. And so how do we prepare? That is so helpful. And I think um, I'm going to put in our show notes when this uh, for the episode, your latest preaching that you did for Catholic Women Preach. I think it was your latest one where you talk about how to become Bluetooth Christians and yeah. be in discover mode. <laughs> so, yes. Um, it, that might be a good one for people to re-up and listen to in preparation for Advent. Thank you so much, Timon. It's been so grateful to have this conversation with you and some of our mutual storytelling. And I know our, our listeners will really appreciate it. So a happy Thanksgiving to you. And thank you so much for all the work you do for our church. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. And blessed Thanksgiving to you. Hello, this is David again. The full version of Heidi's interview is available on our Patreon site, patreon.com slash FrancisFXPod. For Heidi and Father Dan, I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a couple weeks with the next episode of the Francis Effect podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.